Welcome back to the Global Digital Banker. My name is Adele Grissoff and this is RFI Group's Insight-backed podcast focused on key trends, thought leadership and best practice within the fast-growing and dynamic world of digital banking. On today's episode, we hear the latest insights behind RFI Group's recent study entitled Winning the Post PSD2 Customer, along with some interesting case studies and opinions from around the globe. Guests include Victoria Bateman, Managing Director EMEA at RFI Group, Pascal Nisri, CEO at Czech, and Steve Weston, CEO at Vault. Kicking off today's episode, Victoria Bateman at RFI Group shares insights around consumer awareness, perceptions, and comfort towards open banking and data sharing. Really pleased to be joined today by Victoria Bateman. Thought it would be quite interesting to just talk firstly about awareness. How much are consumers aware of these massive changes that are going to be impacting them? Well, I think the short answer to that is not very much okay. in terms of overall awareness of the legislation itself. Um, and one of the things that we were very focused on when we started the study, it's largely irrelevant when you're interviewing consumers about how they might respond or how they might behave to consider their actual understanding of the concept of the legislation. So we did test um, their understanding in the study and 3% of consumers told us that they'd heard of the, the term PSD2. Uh, 16% claim to have heard of open banking. But what we wanted to do was not really focus on that because that's not the way that consumers think. So we were looking to explore their attitudes and their behaviours much more broadly uh, in a way that we can link back to the potential outcomes of the legislation. So that was sort of the focus of the study overall. Mm. And how are we seeing consumers attitudes and what is their sentiment around the concept of data sharing and, and how much do they value having control over their personal data? Mm. Well, it's quite an interesting question. So one of the things we did when we started off in the study was we tried to explore more broadly the extent to which consumers were already sharing their data with digital services that they used, both inside and outside of the, the banking environment. Interestingly, when we ask the question to consumers, do you currently share any of your personal information with any of the apps that you currently use? Uh, Less than one in three consumers said that they did. So we share our personal information um, already. And yet when we went on to ask them about the applications that they were currently using across a really broad range of services, of digital services, what we found was that 7 in 10 customers are actually using some sort of app that requires them to disclose personal information of some kind. Mm. So that was really interesting and it's an important consideration because when you think about what consumers say about the disclosure of their information and who they would trust with that information... Um, You could argue that if they say they won't trust an organisation with their data, that's what they mean, but often they give it away without really thinking about it. So that was quite an interesting component in the study. Broadly, there is interest and openness in using APIs to uh, share information. There's quite a large proportion of consumers, over half, I think, in the UK market, who said, absolutely not, I'm very hesitant, I will not be sharing my personal banking information with any provider. Um, But there's also quite a lot of appetite in the market as well, uh, and a recognition that services could potentially be offered that would have real value and benefit to consumers in the current market. Yeah, that's key, isn't it? The value that consumers are offered in return for their Mm. data sharing. That's at the crux of it. Absolutely. Um, But before we go on to sort of what those valued services could look like, Mm -hmm. 
there's a lot of conversation around opening up the market around this as a result of open APIs, lots of new players and entrants being able to come in uh, and sort of disrupt the industry and then pose a potential threat to the traditional banks. So um, what's the study showing about that and how consumers feel about who they want to entrust with their data? So we asked a lot of questions in the study around the concept of trust. Mm. Um, So first of all, uh, looking at who consumers trust more broadly to share their personal information with. Um, We also asked about trust of different kinds of providers in terms of using them for financial services. Thinking about it just from a data sharing point of view, um, we asked them a question about a huge range of current providers of financial services, new fintechs, and also everyone's talking about the potential technology giants who could enter mm. the banking market as a result of the new legislation. So we asked customers about all of those different types of providers. Um, and at an overall level, if we think about it from a trust scale point of view, banks are by a small margin in the lead overall. But actually the scheme, so Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and also PayPal Mm. are right up there in terms of consumer trust. And when we broke out the GAFA companies, as you would probably expect, given that we fielded this study just in the the same time that Cambridge Analytica uh, happened, uh, Facebook was pretty much decimated by that. So that's one of the organizations that consumers now trust the absolute least. But Amazon is doing particularly well. Um, And the rest of the GAFA companies don't seem to have suffered too much so far by association. And if you think about it from an age perspective, in fact, amongst the younger age groups, they have the highest degree of trust in Amazon and PayPal. So they trust those organizations with the sharing of their data more so than they trust their banks. So they're using those organizations prolifically. Um, And if we think that consumer behavior will continue to be Um, dictated by who consumers trust and distrust, then we can probably discount the threat from Facebook, but potentially we should be concerned about what PayPal and Amazon might do. Mm. And incumbents, I think, should also be considering what those brands have done to earn consumer trust. Uh, Because the fact is that Amazon is trusted by younger people Uh, despite us not really knowing what they know about us and also how they are using that information. So that's quite interesting. Um, But still a big challenge for the fintechs as well. So unfortunately, the fintechs are the least trusted. And that's just a brand awareness. It's a presence in the market. It's a longevity and financial services issue. Um, but some big hurdles there. It's interesting you mentioned the schemes and you've mentioned Amazon and PayPal. Do you have insights as to why? For the likes of Amazon and PayPal, for younger consumers, they're using those organizations so prolifically Mm. to make payments, to to use their services. As long as they're not let down by those providers, they just have that degree of comfort that it seems that they are likely to potentially extend Mm. um, into other types of services as well. Um, The schemes is quite an interesting one and some of the content behind that trust related to the fact that, again, they're there sort of in the background of in consumers' minds. The banks have more opportunity to let consumers down because they're at the forefront, they're sort of the face. Um, Visa and MasterCard are in the background and also they're not bombarding customers with contact. Mm. So you never hear from Visa or MasterCard. They're just doing a good job 
in the background. And I think that that explains a little bit why they're trusted. When consumers think about who they trust, they also think about the extent to which those organisations interfere in their lives um, and try and sell them services. And that's not an issue that uh, the schemes have. Mm. What are those barriers to trust, particularly for the newer players that are coming in? You mentioned sort of longevity and brand awareness. But how can these uh, companies overcome issues with trust? For all of the different types of organisations who we tested, and we sort of looked at the top barriers per organisation, the top two barriers were pretty much identical across every one of those organisations. And they both sort of relate to trust and data security. So first of all, just um, trust in terms of keeping that information secure so that you know that that data isn't going to be at risk of going somewhere else, particularly when it comes to financial data. Um, And the second one was around using customer information for their own purposes, so not for the purpose in which you intend it to be used. Um, So consumers really need to be comfortable that if they're giving access to their financial data, it's for the reasons that they've requested those providers do so and for the benefit of the consumer and they're not going to to use that data outside of that. I think also there are some key concerns about risk and liability and not understanding where that information could potentially be held as well. So when thinking about how financial services can be innovating and adapting to better their customers' experiences, do they need to be focusing on where there is existing pain points or is this about completely brand new services that customers haven't even thought of yet Mm -hmm. or know that they need? Yeah, that's a really good question. It was actually quite a big focus of the study. The biggest part of the study was obviously testing consumer reactions to potential new propositions that could come out in the market. But in order to do that, what we wanted to do was to get a really good understanding of how they felt about their existing banking experiences and their existing relationships um, with a view to potentially using that information to see what the gaps were in the market and how they relate to what providers are potentially going to be offering. And the fact is that if we ask consumers how satisfied they are at an overall level or how easy they find their everyday banking or the extent to which they would recommend banking with their existing providers, the fact is that very few consumers find their everyday banking relationships challenging. Mm. So if we ask them how easy they find it to bank with their main provider, for example, uh, 7 in 10 will say it's extremely easy. The rest find it relatively easy. Very, very few find it difficult to do all the things that they want to be able to do within their existing relationships. But customers don't know what they don't know. So they don't know what potential services could be there in, in the future. And thinking about that even more specifically around digital banking services or mobile banking services, it's the same story. So the vast majority of consumers are very satisfied with what they have. Um, They don't necessarily find their experiences lacking in any way. But they do still have pain points and frustrations that new providers could potentially seek to address. So we asked questions around the biggest pain points that they have in relation to the way they bank and the way that they pay. And lots of consumers gave us pain points. Um, We've got some quite rich information there. A couple of things that came out. Visibility of payments, for example, was a key challenge. Um, So either waiting for transactions or payments to actually come through on their accounts or being able to see transactions in real time. But also when you look at how satisfied consumers are with specific banking tasks, 
we can also see that there are still some opportunities to delight consumers. So they're satisfied at an overall level, but breaking it out by ranking tasks creates some differentiation. So some of the things, for example, simplifying product applications, uh, helping consumers to avoid fees, uh, moving money between their accounts with different banks in budgeting and financial management. Um, so lots of opportunities there to potentially delight consumers. But ultimately, I think the opportunity isn't necessarily going to arise from harnessing dissatisfaction. Um, rather, it's going to be offering new and compelling market propositions. Obviously, a lot of financial services companies right now are thinking about how to turn this into an opportunity mm -hmm. and kind of what they can be offering customers that they couldn't before as a result of these changes. So what is the appetite from consumers for the types of services that open banking and PSD2 is allowing? Um, so at a high level, if we think about uh, PSD2 and payments initiation services, there is quite a bit of appetite there. So one in four consumers found the concept of using a payments initiation service quite interesting and said that they were likely to some degree to potentially use that in the future, uh, albeit at this stage not necessarily for all of their purchases. So we asked the question, is this something that you would be open to doing? Um, would it be for all of your online purchases in the future or just a proportion? Um, so there's definitely some appetite there. Um, there is also appetite in providing consent for third parties to access their account information for quite a range of services. And as I mentioned at the beginning, um, around half of consumers have some interest in, in doing that. Aggregation services were quite popular, but overall, the services that came out as top at an overall level broadly related to um, being able to potentially avoid fees, being able to avoid fraud. So, for example, services that potentially enable consumers to be alerted if there was something untoward happening on their account. Um, and also financial optimization as well. Uh, so, highlighting ways in which consumers can earn more or better rewards or advising consumers around how to get the best out of their money. Um, or notifying them of lower cost services that could potentially become available, such things as electricity and gas, for example. Um, so those were the most sort of popular services overall. There are some differences if you look at particular demographic splits. So age is always an interesting one. Um, P2P payments is very popular amongst young millennials and there's lots of appetite there for um, new services in that arena. And Gen X were particularly interested in uh, recommendations and sort of one-off access for things like credit assessments um, for loan products or mortgages. So this is very much the tip of the iceberg what we've been able to talk about. There's a huge wealth of data that you've got from this study. Thank you for sharing that overview with us today. Next up, we have Pascal Nisri, CEO at Czech, who shares a UK perspective on the shift in personal data ownership and successfully navigating global regulatory environments. Pleased today to be joined by Pascal Nisri, CEO and co-founder of Czech. Thanks so much for being here with me today, Pascal. Thank you, Sarah. You're in quite a unique position as a banking executive that also has founded a fintech company. And you're in a good position to offer that advice to other entrepreneurs who are hoping to resonate with the traditional bank. So can you share some thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks. I guess probably one of the first thing I could say is 
Um, there are a lot of buzzwords out there. But what I think is it's important as an entrepreneur to always remember what are we here for and what are those institutions that you're trying to sell to are here for. So if you are solving real problems and not just putting uh, cool technologies or the latest buzzword of the moment, probably a very important first starting point. Mm. And, you know, we have to remember that those financial institutions want to make real and concrete changes for their businesses, for their customers, uh, and making difference for those customers and the shareholders. So if you come with something that really makes a difference to customer experience, processes, kind of reduce the, the cost and increase profit, all those kind of levers that are very important to them, it obviously very much uh, facilitates the, the, the discussion. Mm. And that's the case for us, you know, uh, when it comes to digital identity, personal data ownership, all of that is not necessarily new topics or new uh, debate. Uh, the philosophical debate around uh, personal data ownership is not new by any stretch of imagination, mm. but the concrete way that we are addressing that and how we solve real life problems, providing real use cases for those financial institutions and for their end customers so that there's something in it for them, uh, is really probably what the mark in those uh, big institutions is to find the right people to talk to. You know, mm. it's, not, it's never easy, especially when there are so many people, you can be bouncing off from one to another, uh, you, and very often in big organization, you have group, region, country. So I find that one of the important things to do uh, inside and outside a company like this is to try and align the planet. So uh, when you have uh, some appetite coming from a, a group strategy or group global stakeholders, and you have also a real intent on the ground in the country because there's something that will really help, something very concrete for them, if you're able to align that, it takes a lot of hard work and discussion and interaction, but when you do have that, it kind of uh, triggers something that really is helpful. Mm. <laughs> so it's about talking the right language for that institution to the right person. Yes, Yeah. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and, and you mentioned that data ownership is, is not a new concept, mm. uh, but we're really in a different time now in terms of ownership of data, how open that is, and also just a shift in ownership from the business to the individual, which is something I know that you're really passionate about. So can you explain the forces that are driving the shift? Yes, you're right. So, I mean, you mentioned, you know, I've been working for almost 20 years in banking all over the world and, and doing that in senior position kind of gave me a, a good first-hand view mm. into two opposite forces that are at play. The fact that on one side, consumers don't want to share information anymore because of all the security breaches, the data hacks, the reselling of data. But also the fact that on the other side, regulators and digital strategies are forcing businesses like banks and insurance companies to know more than ever before about their customers. Mm. And this is where kind of uh, this is becoming a bit difficult because people don't want to give a check. We believe that the only way to reconcile those two opposite forces is when you shift personal data ownership from businesses to the individuals to the benefit of both. Mm. And so that's exactly what check enables and supports. So we are a B2B2C digital identity ecosystem mm -hmm. for consumers. It's a personal mobile data wallet where they can store, manage, and share their data. Uh, for businesses, it's an API connecting to their information system and a business dashboard, which can be used through the web, uh, even with no integration at all, to do data requests at onboarding, periodic refreshes, and all the added value services like messaging, consent, alerts, statements, all of that kind of chats. And as we join the dot, we verify a lot of things like uh, document of ID, face matching, liveness, and all of that. So for us, what's important is that we see identity as an enabler. Uh, where a lot of the other uh, companies out there are stopping there. But we then go from there. We have a multi-layered ecosystem where this is an enabler and then we do a first layer of EKYC, but in a way that organization can really access the information, 
all consent and based and managed by the individual at the end. Uh, but also a second layer of added value services that I mentioned, messaging, consent alerts, and then even more after that. And in a way that is quite differentiated in terms of the flexibility we provide, easy to deploy, extremely secure, through like a solution that is cross silos in banks, cross banks, cross industries and cross borders, and through that multi-layer ecosystem. Mm. And so privacy and security is a massive thing here, but it's also around trust, isn't it? So it's the individual perception of how much privacy and security there is, almost above the reality. So how do you overcome those challenges? A lot of regulation around the world, okay? For a long time, a lot of regulation requiring more and more data to be captured, as I said. You know, all the things around uh, to, to fight money laundering, sanction evasion, all of that. Mm. Uh, so a lot of regulation pushing for more capture of information. Plus, a lot of digital strategy also, as we know in the new world, require even more data to fit into a lot of engines and all. But at the same time, regulators also actually saw that hey, all of this is starting to amount to a really big amount of data mm. and that are actually no longer really owned by the right parties, meaning the individual themselves. And that's why it kind of led to a different type of regulation now. And that's where GDPR, uh, open banking, PSD2, etc. kind of uh, uh, came to the party. Uh, obviously, those regulations are really helping to get people and organizations to realize the importance of that. For us, I think it comes back to a few important points so that people actually trust what we do and, and how we do it. So from a, a business model perspective and entertainment condition perspective, we're very clear that this is not our data. We don't use the data. We don't see the data. We're not reselling that data, etc. This is actually the end user's data. From a technology perspective, we cannot see that data. It's completely fully encrypted with symmetric keys at customer and data point level that we don't have. So therefore, it's quite reassuring, I guess, for end users and for the banks and insurance companies themselves because they're not going to recommend that or use it as a channel, as one of the options for their customers to provide data if they're not uh, comfortable enough. But I think all of that anyway, beyond uh, business models and technology and all of that, comes back at some point to something that is more profound, which is more uh, a shift of mindset mm. in, uh, in uh, businesses and, and consumers to ensure that the personal data are shared and used appropriately, that it's important, that it's actually a business enabler, can create even more interesting businesses if consumers are comfortable sharing your data with you, they will share more and then you can do more, but in a way that is more future-proof and long sustainable uh, way as mm. opposed to the way it was before. So it's a new paradigm and, uh, and, uh, and a balance that is supporting the online and, and the broader economy, I guess, now. You're a global company, so how have you found navigating those different regulatory environments and what are the big differences that you're seeing across the globe? Most of the regulators in the world are quite active. As I said earlier, you know, a lot of regulation in the last few years around the anti-money laundering, contractorist financing and so on, tax evasion, and then often it starts somewhere and then it spawns off or it replicates everywhere. So be it around the regulation of uh, money laundering and then leading to all the KYC things uh, led by the uh, sub subgroup of the OECD uh, that actually permeates around the world, or be it because one jurisdiction has uh, a new regulation that is then replicated through common reporting standards, CRS, in many other places. A lot of regulators are watching each other's and then saying, oh, that's pretty cool, we should do the same. Mm. And, and then it kind of, uh, over time, uh, harmonize around the world. And an example of that being lately open banking, uh, where there's a lot of thinking going on uh, uh, following what's happening in Europe. Now a lot of thinking around this in Singapore, Australia, and so on. Mm. But at the end, they're all trying to achieve the same thing, a similar thing understanding the people and the flows of money to secure and strengthen the economy and reduce or stop the bad things like money laundering, like people trafficking, all the things that are actually important for them, but for us as well as individuals, we can all relate, you know, when we see bad things happening on TV or around us, a lot of that at the starting point come from 
uh, this type of bad behavior that you can try and reduce or stop. Mm. And regulators also have a key focus on innovation and driving competition. And I think we're feeling it more here than, than ever before in terms of opening up the, the data and therefore opening up opportunities for different types of organizations to benefit. What's your opinion on who stands to gain the most within this open banking? Lately, you can hear a lot more it's about cooperation, at least more than competition. Of course, you have still sometimes a lot of competition, but I think the debate has moved on. It's a lot about what can we do better for customers in the end together. Mm. Of course, there's still competition and tension sometimes and so on, but I think there's a lot less of that now. And both FIs and financial institutions and startups have a lot to gain uh, in a mutually beneficial collaboration, mm. which in the end should benefit actually even more than any of them. Uh, should benefit uh, the end users, the consumers or the businesses alike, through better services, pricing, etc. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today, Pascal. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. With open banking on the horizon in Australia, we caught up with Steve Weston, CEO at Vault, to discover his opinion on potential opportunities within the Australian market and recommendations to overcoming consumer perceptions around security and trust. Chloe James here for the Global Digital Banker podcast. Really excited to be chatting to Steve Weston, who's the CEO of Vault Bank in Australia with a plethora of international experience as well. Steve, I understand chatting to you from the nation's capital, Canberra, this morning. That's right, Chloe. Uh, there's a lot of interest in the world of banking, of course, and, and bringing a new competition to the marketplace, which is, is what we're doing with Vault Bank. Exciting time. So tell me about Vault and what you've created. So we are bringing to the Australian banking system the sort of competition that people are crying out for and that we have seen in other parts of the world but not yet in Australia. It was only in May 2017 when the government proposed a number of initiatives that would make it really possible for the first time for a startup to get a banking licence in Australia. And we uh, received Australia's first restricted banking licence in May, so just over a month ago. We will look to get a full banking licence by the end of the 2018 calendar year uh, and we'll be offering consumer uh, and small business banking products. But in a way, you having a customer experience leveraging uh, the best of technology and data analytics and providing a much more personalised experience uh, than we've seen before. When it comes to open banking, we obviously hear so much about open banking in uh, PSD2 in the UK and it's coming into this market, I guess, at, you know, at, at a fast pace. What sort of opportunities will open banking bring? I imagine you would be a big supporter of it, Steve. Absolutely. Having worked for big banks, uh, you are sitting on an incredibly valuable asset in having customers' transactional data. So things like propensity modelling, knowing uh, what the next logical financial services product they will need and be able to promote that to customers, uh, making affordability uh, assessments on how much a customer can afford and those sorts of things. Having that data being able to be provided to other firms with the consent of the customer where they can get a better deal will make the way that we bank much more customer-centric. So getting data today, Chloe, if you want us to review your regular bills, your gas, electricity, telco, uh, insurances and the like, and if we can find you a better deal and let you know, uh, you may decide to take that up. Data allows you to do those sorts of things today. When you're sitting on a big customer database and you're looking at the healthiest banking margins in the world, there is little incentive for you uh, to let customers know that there is a better deal out there for them. In fact, you end up relying on the inertia. 
open banking will help uh, shine a light on the fact that customers can get a better deal. Uh, what I would say, though, it won't be an immediate panacea. People forget that customers need to give consent uh, about who their data is given to and for what purposes and for how long, and that's really important. So customers aren't just going to hand the data over to everyone. So as a potential user of, of that customer's data, you need to be able to show how you're going to keep that data safe, and customers rightly are getting much more savvy. They know that their data is valuable, mm. and they will want to see what that value exchange will be. If I give you Vault Bank my data, what is it that you're going to give me in return that gives me a better deal than what I'm on today? And I think we've kind of overlooked that when we look at PSD2. We think, turn the switch on and the world changes overnight. That's not going to be the case. Mm. It's interesting to think about how much consumers will, you know, take this up and and we all sit here in the industry and talk about it and talk about how fabulous it will be and it's obviously going to be you know hugely market changing in our view but the education piece surely comes in and, and customers need to give that permission as you say and need to see a return on you know return on value and return on exchange are you looking at the uk closely i should say here steve you obviously you know headed up the biggest mortgage book at barclays in the uk for many years before you returned to australia so do you still look at the UK market a lot when it comes to this open banking piece? I do. I'm, I'm there on a fintech trade tour in association with both the UK and the, and the Australian governments in the first week of July. And, and one of the key areas of focus uh, for that trade mission uh, and for myself will be just looking at the progress that's been made around open banking and, and bring those learnings back to Australia or to Vault Bank in particular. Mm. Do you think Australian consumers in general, from what you've seen and since you've returned, are likely to have a have a quick adoption of you know new regulations and, and open banking? You think they'll be keen for it? What all the research shows is that customers are open to a better deal, mm. but they need to become aware of it. So it's no use us advertising on television because it looks like you're just pushing your own product. Yeah. What we're seeing now is that customers are relying on somebody that they trust advocating for a product that may look like it's a better deal for the customer. So if it just looks like it's a better deal, customers typically won't act. If somebody that they trust and respect says, that they, look, uh, I like this or I use it, uh, much more inclined to buy. Mm. And even then they won't unless... Uh, that process of buying is easy. It's quite complex. So I think the Aussie consumers know they're not getting the best of deals and things like Royal Commission hasn't hurt that opinion at all. Absolutely. They, they still won't move yeah. uh, unless they believe that there's a better deal somewhere else. Somebody tells them that they trust that it's a better deal and then to switch across uh, is a really easy process. Mm-hmm. You get that ingre- those ingredients for the recipe right, uh, then we will see people really start to switch. I think Australian millennials are among the most concerned about financial futures, mm. uh, so particularly around things like home ownership. They are also the most likely uh, millennial population in any developed country to switch banks. So not like mum and dad, we all have a, a little bit of a whinge in a moment. The millennials in Australia are the most likely to move banking. So, look, it's going to be really interesting to see how things play out over the next five years or so. Yeah, it absolutely is. Thank you so much for joining Global Digital Banker Podcast. Really appreciated chatting to you and look forward to seeing Vault's continued success over the coming months and years. My pleasure, Chloe. Exciting time for all of us. 
We hope you enjoyed the episode this week. To view the show notes from this episode, head to globaldigitalbanker.com. To get in touch with us, check out our Instagram, Global Digital Banker, Twitter at GDB Podcast, or on Facebook under Global Digital Banker Podcast. If you're interested in being a part of the show or would like to let us know what you think of this episode, email us at gdbpodcast at rfigroup.com.